Merry Christmas captives and Merry Christmas captive friends and welcome to episode 45 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialist R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. I wasn't entirely sure if we'd squeeze out one more regular episode uh, over this period but after a few uh, intriguing news items particularly out of Europe in the past fortnight or so at a captive formation interview that I'd got in the bag I thought we probably should get one out. In the second half of the episode we'll be joined by Fabrice Ferrer, Managing Director within Global Risk Consulting for Aon in Luxembourg to discuss news coming out of France about a potential new captive regime to be introduced in early 2021. Fabrice also explains some of the key points to emerge from EOPA's that's the insurance regulator for the European Union, um, their 2020 Solvency 2 review. On first reading, there are some quite positive takeaways for captives regarding a greater degree of proportionality, but as ever, the devil is in the detail. A new pilot scheme in Guernsey to allow the pre-authorization of insurance sales within 48 hours has also been introduced in the last quarter of 2020, so we will get the lowdown on that as well from our guest co-host, while we will also hear from the De Vere Group, one of a few new formations we already know about in the same jurisdiction this year. But joining me as that guest co-host from Guernsey and making his GCP debut is one Peter Child, Head of European Operations and Managing Director at Artex. Peter, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Richard, and happy Christmas. Yes, happy Christmas to you. Um, Peter, w- welcome, first of all. I know you've been a listener for some time, so it's great, it's great to have you on. Um, could you provide, first of all, a, a bit of background on yourself and your role at Artex, but also uh, your role at the uh, Guernsey International Insurance Association, otherwise known as GIA, that you're also uh, active within? I have been involved in the captive industry now for 21, 22 years. First got involved when I returned to Guernsey having worked in the insurance industry in London, working in the trade, credit and political risk arena. Uh, I came back 21 odd years ago and I started working for the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Stayed there for four years, which was a great introduction Mm. to the captive business. And to be honest with you, the reason I did it was because I knew it would give me as wide an insight as possible into the captive industry um, and then potentially give me the pick of where I might want to go and work thereafter. So um, it may not be the purest of regulatory reasons for taking on that role, but I did it and it was a fantastic (laughs) learning ground. From there, I spent um, a couple of years at Aon and then moved into my current company, which at the time was called Heritage Insurance Management. Uh, Six and a half years ago, we were bought out by Gallagher and we're now Artex Risk Solutions. My current role sees me responsible for our European offices. So that's Guernsey, Gibraltar, Malta and London. And I still retain um, a fairly hefty interest in a portfolio of clients, which I run out of our Guernsey office. Fantastic. Well, uh, it's funny you mentioned the Artex buyout of Heritage, Peter, because that was actually my first ever edition of the magazine that I yeah. I produced for Captive Review when I joined Captive. I joined a Captive Review about a month before that was announced, and I think we managed to get the exclusive on it at the time. And uh, I was actually only kind of part time caretaker boss of the mag. Then I hadn't proved myself yet, uh, and I think that went some way to helping me get the gig full time. And the rest is history. So yeah, really, really nice to be reminded of that. Excellent. Um, we're going to come back to Peter in in, in just 
just a moment because we're going to talk a little bit about kind of formation activity but before we get into that uh, I am going to just play for us a, a short seven minute interview with uh, one of the new captives formed in Guernsey this year uh, that was the De Vere group and I was joined by Peter Hobbs chairman of the De Vere group and also chairman of the captive uh, they formed the captive for professional indemnity White Knight Insurance Limited and Peter began by telling us a little bit about the De Vere group. Devere is a, is, a, is a global financial services group. We offer a, a range of services to clients, mainly in the mass affluent and, and high net worth sectors. We're represented in around 40 countries in all uh, the major financial services centres. And we specialise in the delivery of individual international financial advice, ranging from financial planning, insurance, discretionary fund management services, platform services, even e-banking, pensions, crypto investments, to, to name but a few. We try and offer our international clients a complete one-stop service. The majority of our clients are generally expatriates and our head office is in, in the United Arab Emirates. So Devere announced uh, the formation of a, of a single parent captive, White Knight, in October uh, in Guernsey. How long had uh, had the captive, or this idea of having a captive been in the works and, and had this approach to insurance being considered by the group previously? Well, White Knight uh, itself was in the planning cycle from probably late 2019. Uh, we had been considering the idea for a while, you know, as the group has grown and become more diverse. We felt the need to ensure as best we can that we make good effective use of the capital we employ. And, and a captive certainly has some potential benefits in, in that area. Uh, the shock of, for sure, the huge PI Premium increases in some markets in 2019 helped focus our, our minds. In the event, uh, we kicked off the project at the beginning of Q1 2020 and launched at the, the beginning of, as you say, uh, Q4 uh, 2020. We could have actually done it faster, but uh, you know what it's like. There's lots of projects running in large companies, and this was one of them. So we weren't pushing the accelerator that hard. We had a target date to launch uh, late September to coincide with some of the renewals for our subsidiaries. And that obviously is all that is quite a common approach is to obviously make sure the captive is up and running in time for an upcoming uh, kind of renewal landmark. And you mentioned professional indemnity there, the PI market. Um, it does seem that that rising uh, PI costs were, were a big factor in this decision. But there's also mention in, in the press release of other internal risks that the captive will be used for. Can you, can you shed any light on, on what those, those kind of risks might be? Yes. Uh, in the area of our own insurance coverage, in the last few years, our liability covers uh, have been growing in cost at an ever-increasing rate, particularly PI and DNO. In some sectors like the UK, where premiums have been doubling and tripling in, in some years, that's if covers available at all. In our case as a group, we have an excellent and almost non-existent insurance claims history across the globe. So we've found our premiums escalating to meet the claims of uh, less well-run firms. The UK in, in particular has a fixed minimum regulatory requirement for PI cover, and the market has come under such pressure you know, after scandals like British Steel, where not only are premiums rising, the number of providers able to offer realistic levels of cover above the regulatory minimum has almost disappeared. Uh, this is having a gradual knock-on effect around the rest of Europe and other parts of the world as PI combined ratios, I assume, come under pressure. 
So as a group, we felt it was time to step in to protect both ourselves and our as a, and our clients. You know, looking at the the overall you know internal portfolio of the group, I mentioned that we're in about forty countries, so we have lots of subsidiary units with with a range of existing and emerging risks. So whilst we're focusing very much on PI as the primary and secondary uh, directors and officers insurance, I'm not close-minded to looking at these other risks such as PNC covers, PL and EL, if it becomes clear there are opportunities for us to control an acceptable risk, um, those new risks, if, if they are, then we'll take them. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point about captives more broadly is that often they may be driven, a new captive formation may be driven by a particular need or, or line of insurance, like in this case, professional indemnity. And you're, you're, you're by far not alone as, as look at needing professional indemnity uh, alternatives in, in this market. I know of a few others in Guernsey already this year who have been formed for similar reasons. But of course, once you've got the captive in place, it gives you the possibility to look at other smaller risks, which might not have necessitated a, a captive by itself. But of course, now you have the vehicle, it does become an option. It's, it's great to see, though, again, in, in, in the announcement of the formation of the captive, it's great to see a, a strong board makeup announced with yourself and also uh, Peter Moffat, who may be familiar to people in Guernsey, formerly of the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, among its directors. Why, why do you think it's important to have a, a strong independent presence on the board, as well as, I presume, having input from local captive managers, legal, etc.? In a way, that's driven by my own personal philosophy, if we can attract quality, experienced pe- people, outcomes are generally positive. The appointment of Peter Moffat is a good example, and, and David Moore. Da- David Moore is one of the top corporate lawyers in the UK, not just in, in Guernsey. They've both come on our board and are typical examples, but they've just got a, a wealth of experience and are going to help guide the captive in its early years and beyond. Generally strong, well-led boards in any industry tend to drive and focus the management to deliver strong results. Yeah, we were very lucky to find these people here in Guernsey as the island has an enviable reputation in the captive field with, with not just directors, but a top quality range of insurance managers able to provide uh, exceptional services. Examples like Aon and Marsh uh, spring to mind. We actually picked ARM, Alternative Risk Management, to work with us. And I certainly found them to be a good corporate fit for the group. The local regulator, the GFSC, worked with us quickly and efficiently to issue our license, and I can't speak more highly of their help. It was more us dragging their feet than anybody else, honestly. When you were when you were looking at captive, was, was Guernsey always immediately the, the choice because of your local connections? Obviously, it is a leading jurisdiction in, in the region as well, or, or did you take the time to look at what other options may be, may be viable or, or suitable? Yeah, I did think about it for a while. Where is the best best place to be? But I fell back on Guernsey in, in talking to my colleagues uh, around the place and in Europe. It would have been more difficult for us to, to go elsewhere where I don't know the local people so well. Guernsey's reputation for, for captives is, is second to none, really. It would, it would have been daft of me to go anywhere else when, when there's so much local talent that I already know. I think there's a lot in working with people that you know and respect already. It's very easy to to pick up you know, lots of CVs and, and, and recommendations. But in the end, it's often down to personal experience, in my view. 
so we just heard there from uh, Peter Hobbs at the Devere Group. Really great to get that kind of fresh insight into a, into a new captive formation. I know of at least one other captive formed in Guernsey this year, Peter, which has been formed for the same purpose, to, to cover for professional indemnity. Are you aware of that line uh, being a particular problem area and driving uh, interesting captives in, in Guernsey or, or elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Not, and not just in Guernsey. So I can speak kind of generally for Guernsey to say that it really was the hardening of the PI market, the PI construction market, um, which really was the first indication that there was going to be a, a serious uptick in the interest of the captive concept. So we're talking kind of probably this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier, that we started to see individual interests from construction groups who are struggling to get PI cover per se, never mind at uh, hardening rates. And then that spread. So across this year, PI in general has become very hard to access. And you may know of, of one more. I know of at least another three uh, that have oh, been formed go. this year in Guernsey um, for that purpose. And in fact, the first cell that was formed under the pre-authorization regime was formed in order to provide PI for a financial services firm. Great. And we'll, we'll definitely come on to more detail about that pre-authorization scheme uh, later in the episode. So in terms of um, broader, outside of that that PI uh, activity, we're hearing about plenty of formation activity in Europe and around the world. From what I can see, Peter, a lot of that European activity might be pushed into next year, although it sounds like Guernsey have already got a decent, a healthy amount licensed. How, how are you seeing this kind of activity materialize again in Guernsey and, and more broadly uh, with your kind of your European wide hat on? Yeah, it's interesting. We- we, we talked last at, uh, at AMIC back in October, and at the time I made the comment that although there'd been uh, clearly a lot of interest in the captive concept, the number of new licenses had remained comparatively small at the time. Um, in the two and a half months since then, the landscape has changed. So that, uh, that hopper of, of new business has started to flow. The bottom has fallen out and license applications are flowing through in Guernsey, through the GFSC at the moment. I know they're up into double-digit figures with many of those applications seeking to form before the end of the year. Um, And the same is true of my experience within Europe, primarily um, in Malta. There are new captive applications going through at the minute. Obviously, the process there is a wee bit bit longer. So we would expect to see those formations come to fruition next year rather than this. And I suspect when we look back in 2023 at the way that the the new licenses flow through as a result of this hardening market, we'll see the peak in 2021, possibly into 2022. But next year will be a bumper year for captive formations, there's no doubt. Well, that is certainly good news for the captive market regarding the prospect of continuing formations in Europe in 2021 and beyond. But after the break, we are going to move to the continent and be joined by Fabrice Ferrer of Aon in Luxembourg to discuss a potential new captive regime in France and the comments on captives and proportionality from the EU's insurance regulator EOPA in its Solvency 2 review. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, 
enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast. We'll be back with Peter Child to discuss Guernsey's pilot scheme for pre-authorization of insurance sales shortly. But I am now joined by Fabrice Ferrer, Managing Director within Global Risk Consulting for Aon in Luxembourg. Fabrice and I go on to discuss the IOPA Solvency 2 review, but I began by asking him for his take on the news that France may introduce a captive regulatory framework in the new year. I think it's an opportunity you know, for our clients. It's always good to have options, um, and the more options, the better. So the discussion around French corporates having to set up the captives abroad because France was not appropriate um, from a regulatory standpoint and a proportionality standpoint for setting up captives, it was too costly. Having, having that change and offering a, now a, a, an option in the future for French corporates to consider France as an alternative domicile, is, is in my view um, something that can only be positive for our clients. Now, as we know, you know the key is, is really around how much France will make the step into having an appropriate regulatory framework. Uh, I mean, in terms of, of proportionality, especially because the regulatory framework is solvency to itself, like everywhere else. But in terms of the approach of the regulator, uh, the proportionality that is granted to captives, the facility given to captives to have an outsourced model, um, the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the governance framework that will be imposed on those French captives, all of those elements will be key to determine how competitive France is, is a captive domicile and, and how easy it is for French clients to set up their captives in France. Yeah, as you said, Fabrice, the devil, I'm sure, will be in the detail as usual with, with captive regulation. So any regulatory or legislative framework that is introduced and, and the expect, expectation from my uh, contacts at Amre is that they may well be introduced in the first quarter of next year, which would be extremely fast. It will be interesting to see what the detail is. So you said that you think that obviously French clients, French insureds would welcome the possibility of, of domiciling in France, their captive. Um, we, of course... Ireland and Luxembourg both have, you know, significant numbers of French-owned captives within their jurisdictions, and Malta, I know, has a few as well. Other than new formations considering France as an option in terms of staying at home, do you think if an appropriate captive framework is introduced in France, would would French corporates with captives in other jurisdictions, do you think they would take a look at re-domiciling or re-domesticating their captives closer to home? Um, that, that's a more complex question, uh, and it comes with a with a, a, a number of elements. So, so first and foremost, uh, yes, there are currently progressing in, in France around setting up a, a, a framework around captives. I understand from discussions that this framework could be really targeted to some specific emergent risks, and uh, and of course the, the the issues we had with the pandemic this year is is, is also driving some of those requirements to find a solution um, to that risk and cyber is another one. So I do understand that some of it might be you know, focused on those specific emerging risks, which are 
kind of difficult to cope with. The second aspect, uh, which will also be a key element um, going forward into potential redomiciliation of captives, is the long-term sustainability and stability. Um, one of the key success factors of any captive domicile is, is not just to have an attractive framework at the outset, but also to have consistency and stability in that framework over time and to remain a captive-friendly domicile over time. And if you look at the kind of key, you know, leading captive domiciles around the world, they would tick that box and they would have remained captive friendly over time. And if it is indeed uh, with a long-term view and a, and a st stable view around it, then yes, we could see some redomiciliation. Having said that, some of the, the clients are in a specific domiciles for specific reasons in terms of being able to you know, if you talk about Dublin being able to write direct across Europe, if you talk about Luxembourg being able to build eligible capital when you have very high cap risk exposures. So it, it's not just about, you know, the regulator being nice and, and proportionate. There's also some, some other aspects to the business model uh, that are to be considered. And it doesn't necessarily mean that having the option of moving the captives to France will mean people will do so. As you know, direct writing is one aspect. Geographical reach is another one. Uh, access to the U.S. Um, to the U.S. Uh, geographies is, is also something that is driving some of the interest out of Dublin, for instance. So there's n numerous aspects, as you, as you know very well. And uh, this move will, would mean that France is one on the list of the domicile comparison. And when the clients are assessing their strategic options, depending on what they want to do from a risk management perspective and a, an insurance underwriting perspective, we will have to compare France to some of the other options to make a decision. Yeah, and as, as you said, I mean, in terms of kind of building up that long-term reputation and being a stable place for for captives to keep your captive, if time will only tell, won't it, for priests on that. You know, you, it doesn't happen overnight, of course. You've got to kind of prove yourself and, and lots of those French-owned captives in Dublin or Luxembourg or Malta have been in those jurisdictions for quite some time and, and probably quite happy there. Well, you, you mentioned, obviously, any French captive regime would, just like any other EU member state, have to follow Solvency 2. Uh, and we did actually have... Have, uh, some interesting uh, publication uh, from AOPA, the, the insurance regulatory uh, regime in, for the whole of the EU, uh, regarding its 2020 Solvency 2 review, uh, and that was published last week. And there was some quite substantial comment regarding captives and the principle of proportionality in that review. From first reading, Fabrice, are these comments welcomed? And do you think it's any indication of a, of a greater or growing understanding of captives by AOPA? I mean, the comments are welcomed, of course. Uh, there's a number of you know interesting features that are that are proposed there, and we can we can further discuss uh, about those uh, a bit later. In, in terms of the interaction with AOPA, I, I must say that the discussions that uh, we could have uh, uh, through uh, through the FERMA interaction with AOPA as well was, I would say, better than the one we experienced back in the years 20, you know, 13, 2014. When there were the initial discussions between you know industry representation and AOPA around the role of captives and how to be proportionate for captives uh, the, the discussion has been much more open um, there's clearly a, a better understanding of of the captive business model um, better probably recognition that captives are specific frameworks that need some specific rules but also enable uh, more proportionality than others so, so that's all positive. Uh, as you probably saw in the document, um, we, we're still 
in the corner where any you know, relief in terms of proportionality or exemptions for captives immediately comes with a lot of criteria that the captives have to meet. And, and you might remember the discussions we had already back at the time when we talked about the Sovereignty 2 directive itself, that there was a definition of captive in that directive and that no further definition or criteria were needed from AOPA. But as you saw in the document, we still, we still get those additional criteria, unfortunately. But, but I, I'd like really to highlight the, the positive direction that this is taking in terms of having a much better and open discussion uh, with AOPA around the captive business model. And I think that's positive for the future because it means that step by step, we will be able to, to have something that is more and more adapted and, um, and uh, appropriate for captives. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, some of that, some of those criteria there, and I'll, I'm going to come onto that in a second. But it does seem, and correct me if I'm wrong, Fabrice, but it does seem that any of these, if any of these changes come into effect, and some of the some of the kind of more proportional approach which has been suggested in this document comes into effect, it will only really be for those, I say, smaller, very much pure first party risk captives rather than those captives that do write a degree of affiliated or third party risk i don't believe it's going to apply at all to those types of captives if if um if it does come into effect do you think it would make a significant difference to those smaller pure first party risk captives in regards to kind of management and administration costs which have been some of the kind of bugbears of of european captive owners of the last five years yeah, so, so one, of the, one of the elements that is positive in the uh, last uh, version of the document is that um, it is clearly stated that the criteria that apply for low-risk undertaking are also reachable, let's say, for captives. And uh, especially there were two criteria in that list that were making uh, captives not complying with low-risk undertaking definition, which we thought was very inappropriate. And, uh, and we had a discussion with AOPA around that. And, and they now introduced a specific uh, paragraph to make sure that captives were falling within the low risk undertaking definition. So any proportionality measure that is in that document applicable to low risk undertaking is also applicable to captives, even if they don't have the very specific criteria that are coming at the end of the document, whereby they could get some additional proportionality measures, but all the ones available for so-called LRU uh, would be applicable to captives as well. Now, in terms of, of true impact on a day-to-day basis for captives, the key outstanding points in my view is that the, uh, the OPSA frequency um, is uh, given now an option to do every two years instead of annually. And also uh, there's the substantial reduction in the SFCR reporting, which is the kind of you know, public disclosure reporting. But we argued from the start that captives should not be subject to because it doesn't make sense for a captive to do public reporting. So what we have now is a, is a bit more hearing about that, um, whereby captives are allowed to reduce substantially the SFCR report to effectively only uh, the relevant QRTs um, in a so-called professional reader SFCR versus the kind of public reader SFCR that they exempted from. Um, so that, that is welcome because that, that is something that we had been requesting from the captive industry since the start of Solvency 2. Now, how impactful that's going to be in terms of you know, true workload and cost for the captives, probably n- not dramatically impactful. Uh, of course, there will be an impact, but um, I would say the, the fact that the SFCR is reduced is more welcomed from a kind of disclosure perspective and the uh, relevance of the disclosure. 
but we still have to do the RSR, which is the main of main work. So the, the cost of doing the SFCR on top was not huge. And uh, the one element that might reduce cost is, is the uh, biannual ORSA instead of annual ORSA. So that will indeed relieve a little bit on, on the cost side. The other aspect that is embedded in the document, which is of course very critical from a cost perspective, is the recognition now by EOPA that a combination of roles and key functions in the governance framework is allowed. So that's very good to have it now on paper because it provides further background for the national authorities to allow that. But in the captive domiciles, this was already the case, be it Ireland or Luxembourg or others. So this, this, this is already in, in place in practice, uh, that proportionality measure. So this is just confirming um, it, it's appropriate. Cheers for Bruce. Really, really substantial rundown for us there. I do appreciate that. And a lot of that does sound very good. One thing uh, I will say is, um, and of course, I'm always for anything for Bruce, which makes uh, doing captive business easier. But as a very, very nosy journalist, I will be very upset if I see the, uh, the end of the public SFCR, uh, because uh, that uh, does give me uh, quite a lot of information as a, as a more public reader. Uh, so that would be a shame. Uh, that's purely a selfish comment on my part. Just lastly, then, we mentioned about there being some kind of additional criteria to, to possibly qualify for these more proportional uh, approaches. One of these uh, criteria I spotted was that says uh, to qualify for some of these uh, limitations and exclusions, loans to parent must not exceed 20% of total captive assets. Now we know that loan backs to parent do remain very common, not just among European captives, but among captives all around the world. It's quite a common way for a captive to use its cash is to loan it back to the parent do you, do you think that criteria maybe might deter some captive would it would it be a trade-off for captives to make in terms of well we want to get these this more proportionality so we might need to stop doing so many loan backs and use our cash in a different way or do you think there, there won't be that kind of conversation yeah so 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 that criteria is a good example of of some of the debate we we had with aopa um around the the fact that the new proportionality measures were very welcome but they were also coming with quite a lot of complexity in terms of who who has access to them in what circumstances and and what you need to do to to be able to apply them and we would have preferred to have a bit more simplicity around how to apply the proportionality but i do understand aopa has also some some other concerns to cope with. Now, the, the criteria around the, the intergroup loan is really something we raised also as a question mark in terms of you know, what is the benefit of that criteria? Because here we're talking about criteria to enable reduced reporting. And uh, together with FEMA, we always you know, highlighted the fact that proportionality should be risk-based. And whatever you, you, you give in terms of relief and proportionality should be looked at against um, what is the objective of, of the reporting or the, the other solvency two elements you're talking about. And in this case, we couldn't see a link. We, don't, we, we couldn't see why having more than 20% of, of cash pooling was, was a key trigger for changing a risk-based approach in terms of giving proportionality on reporting. But unfortunately, you know, we were not successful. The, the, the criteria is still there. Now to your question about the the trade-off, um, in my view, it is pretty clear that you know there's limited number of captive owners that will reduce their intragroup cash pooling to you know get a bit more proportionality on solvency two because the 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 cost of of uh, of managing that cash is is by no means any comparable to uh, to the potential admin cost of of doing one report uh, in addition. 
So um, my, my, my take from that is uh, that probably if we have to comply with that criteria to, to get an element of proportionality as highlighted in the document, then we will just uh, not apply for that element. So, Peter, a bit closer to home in Guernsey, one of the biggest regulatory developments this year has been the introduction of a pilot scheme for a new fast-track pre-authorization for insurance sales, meaning they can be set up and active within 48 hours. How is this intended to be used and how beneficial do you think it will be to the captive market? It's probably worth um, backtracking, Richard, and just kind of telling the story of how this thing came about. My position on gear, the Guernsey International Insurance Association, is as uh, chair of the Market Development Committee. And that Market Development Committee has various different subcommittees split into products, one of which is captives. And that group was keen to see whether there might be a way of accelerating the application process with the GFSC, given that there was the full expectation that there would be a much greater demand for captive formation this year and next year than there has been probably for the last 15 years or so. And so we entered into a dialogue with the GFSC, as myself and Kate Story on behalf of, of GEAR, and we put to them the issue that we often saw whereby because we're coming out of this period where captives haven't necessarily been flavour of the day, people are going through what's a fairly complex educational process at the start, at the same time as they start their renewal process. And quite often, there's just not sufficient time, or there hadn't been sufficient time, for them to be able to grasp what the captive concept meant, to be able to allocate the finances and the time that would be required in order to be able to, to set up a captive vehicle and then to take advantage of that at renewal. So quite often, what we'd see within the, the captive buying process would be potential clients coming to us, taking the time to understand the concept, moving through the renewal cycle, coming to the conclusion that actually there wasn't time to get, get it done this year and then putting it off to next year. And once you've done that, immediately you've not necessarily lost the sale, but you've elongated the sales process by at least 12 months um, and quite often they wouldn't follow through. So what we wanted was a solution which would enable the captive concept to be a fundamental and realistic um, alternative to the bog standard traditional whole risk transfer renewal all the way up to as close to the renewal date as possible. Um, and what the GFSC did, which was fantastic, was to come up with the pre-authorization scheme. Uh, and the key here, um, just for those who don't know, is that it's a pilot scheme. At the moment, it runs through to the end of 2021. It's only for protected cells, which are hosted by protected cell companies, which are owned by licensed insurance managers. It's only for captive business, and it's only for captives who are writing a single line of business, albeit that those sales wouldn't be precluded from adding additional business as time went on. It's also key that those uh, the business plan of those captives is set up so that they can meet the the regulatory solvency minima because the GFSC will not provide regulatory adjustments to those those solvencies. And what it enables is for the manager to make the decision to form the cell and start underwriting the business before an application has to be submitted to the GFSC. So effectively, if the manager is able to get itself comfortable that its client wants to form the cell and has provided the capital that the cell needs to underwrite, and there'll be various different 
parts of the process that the different managers will put in place to ensure that they're, they're confident that the cell should be pre-authorized, then they can make the decision to, to set up that cell. And as long as then they can submit a full application to the GFSC within 14 days of that cell being formed, everyone's happy. It's a fantastically flexible system um, and wholly different from what had happened before. And in addition to that, what the GFSC has done, which has probably been slightly less well publicized, is that it's changed its process for approving standalone captives. So that's kind of a corporate captive as opposed to a, a cell in a protected cell company. Now, the traditional route for approval of a standalone captive would be for the application to be submitted, the GFSC to undertake its due diligence and assessment of the application, and then to supply an approval in principle, which included an approval to incorporate the company. And what the GFSC has said now is that they will provide that approval to incorporate upon submission of the application. And what that means is that the company can hold its first board meeting, it can go through the various processes processes that it needs, especially setting up a bank account, so that by the time the approval in principle comes through, if it's already received its share capital into its bank account, it, it can skip that in principle stage altogether and just go straight into licensing. So it's a contraction of the amount of time it takes for a captive, a standalone captive to be approved as well. Great. Yeah, really, really thorough rundown of that, Peter. And that, that's actually answered quite a few of my questions I had. I think one question I should ask, though, because mm. I remember I gave I gave Delaware a little bit of hard time a couple of years ago, well, maybe three or four years ago now, uh, when they introduced something similar, not the same, but something similar regarding kind of pre-authorization. I just I just guess I should ask the question, you know, is there any way that this, can, this could go wrong? I think it's very interesting that um, it could, it's only uh, for a sale, only monoline business i think is very important only for captive type business so first party risk i think that cuts out a lot of areas where it could go wrong i presume that that's been front and center of the gfsc and and local managers minds and, and lawyers minds about we don't want to speed things up at the sake of uh, for the sake of kind of regulatory uh, compliance yeah you're absolutely right and i think you know all of those points that, that, that you've just kind of read back to me um serve to mitigate the risk but the mm. the key is that this can only be written in a PCC owned by a manager. And it's not unique, but insurance managers in Guernsey are licensed. So they hold a separate license from that of their their um, their clients, their licensed insurance entities. And therefore, if a manager were to go through this process um, and allow a client a pre-authorized sell in its PCC, and there were to be some uh, unwanted ramifications, then that insurance manager is putting the whole of its business in jeopardy because should the GFC choose to do so, you know, it could impose conditions on its license. It could withdraw its license because it would have handled that process poorly. So I think in terms of um, risk appetite and risk management of the process, everyone's interests are aligned. Fantastic. Well, it certainly will be interesting to watch. And as, as you said, we've already seen uh, the first kind of couple go through. And I'm sure by the time we catch up again early uh, in 2021, when we get the third season of the Global Captive podcast underway, we'll have a bit more to reflect on as well to see how that pilot scheme is going. Well, that is all we have time for in this last episode of 2020. We will be back for a season finale in the new year before a short break, before launching into a third season from March. But in the meantime, thank you to all of our guests, Peter Hobbs of the DeVere Group, Fabrice Ferrer of Aeon, and Peter Child of Artex and Gear. Peter, thank you for coming on to the pod. Thank you very much, Richard. Really enjoyed it. 
Stay safe, stay well, and Merry Christmas, captives.